0: Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Adameen Wa salatu wa salamu ala sayyidil mursaleen Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa baraka wa salama ila yawmi ad-deen Amma ba'd Qala Allahu tabaraka wa ta'ala fi quran al-Majid wal-Furqan al-Hameed Huwa Allahul la ilaha illa hu Alimul ghaybi wa shahadati Huwa rahmanul Raheem So our dear brothers, dear sisters, dear friends I don't intend to come here to create any confusion The topic that we have today I'm not sure how it was featured Um, What's the title of your Atheism. Okay, so Islam, God and Atheism And the reason for that talk is that uh, In every century or every generation There are certain types of Discourse, Discussions that go around Uh, In the 80s For those from the 80s There was a certain Discussion that was going on around In the 90s There was a certain discussion Uh, For example in the 90s The big discussion that was Everybody was having was about Jihad For example Afghanistan, uh, Bosnia and things like this Now that's a taboo subject Uh, Then you have the 2000s Now you have uh, if you remember, just before the 2000s, there was a whole millennial bug issue, for those who may remember that. And now, the issue that we're having right now is that there's a, not a massive number, but a significant number of people who are very confused about their faith. To such a degree that some have even... I mean, there's all these people who've probably lost their faith, and who've gone away from the faith. We get really excited when somebody new comes into the faith. But then the problem is that There are are people who Read stuff on the internet Or they have a certain question And they don't get a proper answer And they sometimes leave the faith You see, the problem is this That we have, what we have right now Is that Islam is going through Quite a bit of challenges, Muslims For a number of reasons And I don't want to get into politics of this But there's a number of reasons That we're having challenges Which means that in the media, for example, Islam is being associated with violence, with trouble, with backwardsness, even though it's not. But because the media is not in our hands and it's being influenced by people who don't like Islam because they see Islam as a threat. Islam is probably the only viable threat to pure hedonism and capitalism and so on. So a lot of the Tradition of the UK and of the Western countries is being lost because capitalism has taken over individualism has taken over So the old traditions of Europe that were half decent and some of them were based on Christianity Are all being driven out in fact Christianity has been driven out of Europe In some countries more than others for example if you go to the Scandinavian countries, there's no discussion of God hardly Within mainland Europe, there's still a bit of discussion, but it's not allowed in public spaces. So there's no discussion of Christianity in the workplace. If you're Christian, you leave your religion at the door and you come inside to work. Whether that be a laboratory and you're a scientist, or whether you're doing research somewhere else, you leave it outside. If they talk about Merry Christmas in shops, it's because Merry Christmas is a time to buy gifts. So because it feeds into capitalism, that's why that's allowed. Otherwise, there's no religious aspect to it that they keep. So they've pushed Christianity out because Christianity was the main religion of Europe. Judaism was always a minority and and Jews have faced a huge amount of persecution as well, just within the last hundred years. If you go to Budapest, Hungary, if you go to um, places like Slovakia, numerous Jews were killed and driven out. In fact, in in Budapest, about nearly 300,000. Over 200,000 or 300,000 Jews were killed uh, between, I think, the First and Second World Wars. Second World, towards that time. So, um, Christianity has been driven out. Islam is the only one that is disproportionately practiced by its members. What that means is you have many more Christians or people who may say they're Christians in Europe, right? You see so many people who say they're Christians, but they don't practice proper Christianity. The few that do, that go to church, they are an absolute minority and that is mostly actually immigrants or people of African background for example. They're more faithful Christians as such than our normal English Christians for example. Uh, more than that, Christianity did not do very well in Europe. They were, when, when Europe was a Christian continent as such, they did a lot of oppression in the name of the church. Especially in France, compared to other countries. That's why the French are the most antagonistic towards religion. Because they've suffered quite a bit under the name of Christianity. So that's why they don't like anything to do with religion. Not just Islam, they don't want anything to do with Christianity. But Christianity isn't a threat. Only Islam is a threat. Because in France, there's a huge number of Muslims which are from all the countries that they've colonized. So, Islam is the, the, a follower, a Muslim follower, a Muslim, compared to any other religious a person from any other religion, is going to be more practicing. If you take a hundred Muslims and you take a hundred Christians, hundred Jews, you're going to see that the, from the hundred Muslims probably going to be more practicing hundred Muslims within that, percentage-wise, than anybody else. So now, when there's this idea that religion is a backward idea that, some, that they've driven, that it's all about capitalism and science, and science was never supposed to be a problem with religion anyway, though Christianity saw it as a problem, Islam has never seen science as a problem. Right? So now they think that Islam is now the threat. So they have to push down Islam. And the way to do that is by using the media. That's why you're not going to expect a good story. Sometimes there's a good story in the BBC or somewhere, somewhere. And we get really excited. but majority of the stories are always have some negative spin to it. Even the coverage, for example, of our Sheikh Hazrat Mona Yusuf Mutala, it's a time when he just passed away. Lots of people are grieving. Right. Lots of people are grieving. So they did a, a BBC small interview with Mawlana Ibrahim. So they asked uh, him one or two questions about you know, his influence and everything. That was for about a minute and a half. And then immediately they went and said, Oh, but... Uh, you know, there's a certain segment of the community which is probably, I think, not grieving, which is the Qadiyanis. So immediately they bring a negative aspect. And uh, so, the, you, uh, 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 this is not about the media only. What I'm trying to just say is that when people are bombarded, because they've done studies on this, that when you're bombarded, like let's just say that you are from, uh, where are you from originally? You're from Afghanistan. Which part of Afghanistan? Host. You're from Khost, right? Jalaluddin Haqqani. right? So he's from Khost, right? Now, if somebody tells you that Khost people are very bad, you're you're going to say no. You're going to get angry. You're going to say no. Now, in Khost, there must be a few bad people. Every place has bad people. Somebody who's done something wrong or whatever. So they're going to start pointing them out, look, he's done a bad, he's a bad person. Now slowly your defense and your defense of course is going to, or let's just take Afghanistan in general, right? Or any country for that matter. Egyptian, Indian, Pakistani, whatever. There has to be some bad people. And you know, we do have some bad Muslims who do things in the name of Islam and give Islam a bad name. So... They're going to use that idea. So slowly, slowly, you start thinking, yeah, you're right. Especially if you're not very strong anyway, you're going to be thinking, yeah, maybe you're right. Can you see how it weakens a person's defense, weakens a person's idea of what it means to be a Muslim? Now, if a person, there's a lot of people who come on the media and they say that, why do Muslims, they, they, they are supposed to be from a Muslim background. They say, why do Muslims always ask for prayer? Places in the workplace I don't have a problem with that they say Because you don't pray so you don't have a problem You're not speaking for all Muslims There are a lot of Muslims who want a prayer place at university, at college at, Because they pray, they're observant Or a woman who doesn't generally wear a hijab She's going to say I'm a Muslim, it doesn't bother me this law against, you know, in Europe, it doesn't bother me. Well, it doesn't bother you because you don't but you're not speaking in the name of Islam. You're speaking as one individual Muslim who is an observer who is not observant of a certain, a certain aspect of Islam. So, what it does is that it creates a great confusion, especially to the weak, weaker people. Those people are not so connected to the masjid. Or a, another group that are very vulnerable. And this is where we can definitely make a big change is who have had a bad experience in the name of Islam it's not an Islamic experience they've had but they've had a bad experience that was called Islam but it was not Islam I give you an example there are certain cultures that some of us come from who believe in forced marriages what I mean by forced marriages that when they're still five, seven, eight, nine years old, from birth maybe, they're fixed up with their cousin in the other country, in their ancestral lands. They're fixed up. Now, it's so binding because the whole biradari and the whole qaum and the whole tribe know this. Now when this kid grows up, he has other ideas. He doesn't want to marry his cousin or she doesn't want to marry his cousin. They have no compatibility maybe. But to keep the name, they force them to marriage. So they will take them on a trip there and it will become their marriage trip. I've had a 40-year-old woman call me once for a question. And she said, uh, as I spoke to her, she had a question about something and she was married to a non-Muslim. And she's from one of our Asian countries. So I said, how did you end up? Because now she's a bit regretful and everything. I said, how did you end up in this? She said, well, I was forced to marry my cousin or somebody from... And it didn't work out and parents wouldn't allow us to do anything else. So finally, I ran away and I married somebody else. Now, they force you to marry your cousin, say, you better do this because this is Islamic. This is what the religion tells you to do. The religion does not tell you that you must marry your cousin. It doesn't tell you that. The religion, in especially the Hanafi Madhab, you have, for us, we have to actually take permission from the girl that does she agree to marry somebody? If she doesn't, then you can't force her. And a man, obviously, he has, to agree, he has to agree as well. So now this is called Islam. They don't know anything else about Islam. That's what they think. Oh, Islam suppress me. Can you see what I'm talking about? People have, Or they've had a teacher at madrasa. Or private tuition who abused them. Beat them up or whatever the case is. In a bad way. Didn't really teach them anything. They will associate their Islam with that. Because their families are not maybe very practicing. They don't give them a better idea what Islam is. The Islam at the home is only Eid and Ramadan. There's no other Islam in the house. So the only Islam they've had is with a bad teacher. Not all teachers are bad, but some could be bad. Maybe it was not even a proper teacher. So... Can you see how they've associated Islam with this? They've associated Islam with a trauma. These people, you can give them all the evidence about Islam, it won't make a difference. What they need is pastoral care. They need to be told and explained and counseled that you just got it wrong. There's a trauma associated. So there could be many factors of why a person turns away from something so strong. Could be many factors, that's what I'm trying to tell you. Some parents are so strict They, by nature, they're just so strict. They don't let their children go out. They don't let them do anything. They don't let them have toys, uh, you know, except a few specific type of toys. Overly strict. And they say, because you're a Muslim, that's why you can't have that. And it's just overly strict for no reason. <coughs> right? So the kids grow up thinking, this is Islam. I don't want anything to do with it. Who's the fault? The, the father. The mother Strictness You don't also want to, it to be that Okay, you can do whatever you want There has to be a balance I mean, these are hard and th- These are hard issues that we need to deal with And talk about Getting a balance is very difficult It's a challenge, obviously And that's why we, I have just written a book on marriage After 20 year, over 20 years of being married And dealing with 20 years of marriage issues with people uh, as an imam in my communities. I finally now feel that I'm confident enough to write a book so I wrote a book. I still don't feel confident enough to write a book about bringing up children although a lot of people have requested. Because I want at least my older two to get married first and be settled in their marriage before I can say uh, I got at least two rights. Because it's so difficult. It is a very difficult thing that when you bring children into world that you make them citizens of the country that are decent and God-fearing Muslims as well. Because it requires a certain balance, commitment, and a lot of other things. One kid used to mess around in school. You could tell he was a decent kid, but he used to have mischief. He used to just mess around. You're like, why are you missing? Called his father in. I think it was a Thursday or Wednesday and his father says, you know what, I'm only meeting my son after the weekend for the first time because his father Bichara is a taxi driver, right? Nothing against taxi drivers, but taxi job is kind of one of those weird jobs where the more you do, the more money you make. There's no hours in taxi. It's personal discipline or Uber for that matter. And if you work odd, weird hours, you get make more money because there's less people doing those times. So this guy would never see his children in the weekdays because I think when he went to work uh, uh, he went to work in the evenings and they would be going to sleep and otherwise in in the morning he would be sleeping while they would wake up to go to school or something like that. So we facilitated a meeting with his son for him on Thursday. Like, meet your son. That's just a joke. Um, But that's the sad fact of some some households but our to- topic is not that so let me get back to our original topic then you have another group of people who are probably the majority they they are muslims they call themselves muslim but the, they don't reject islam outwardly but they don't practice it properly either and they don't care whether it gets abused or not because they don't feel a connection why because they they're not making an effort they are the biggest group. They're not absolute atheists, they're not agnostics. Atheists is somebody who rejects and denies that Allah even exists, say, there is no God. They say, la ilaha, la ilaha, they say, there is no God. They don't say, illallah, except Allah. So they are atheists, they absolutely deny. Then you've got agnostics who say, we don't know. We have to keep searching. Like, we have to keep searching if there is a God. There may be, there may not be, we don't know. Right, we have to keep searching. Humanity is millions of years old and there's been many ideas of God and religion for so many centuries, Now, one of them must be right. God could not have kept it hidden for so many centuries and he's gonna reveal in the future. So take one of those ideas, and if you look at all of the ideas about God, in Christianity, for example, in Judaism, in Hinduism, in Buddhism, Taoism, and in Islam, you'll probably find, if you look objectively, that Islam has the richest concept of God. I'll maybe explain that a bit later as the richest concept of, of God and the universe if you're willing to objectively look at it. So this is what you call apathy. Apathy means indifference, I don't care attitude. This is probably worse because it's like, I don't care. Now, why do people not care is the question now. Why do you think peop- some people... Not care. Why do they have an indifferent attitude? Why couldn't they care less? Why do you think? A lot of the time it's because you have three things which creates a false sense of confidence in you, which is supposed to be a na'mah of Allah, but people have taken it as something that gives you so much confidence that you become arrogant about it. Number one, you've got health. Number two, you've got enough money to buy whatever you want. Generally speaking, give or take. And number three, you've got a sense of security. Nothing bothers you. See, if you go to a place where you've got money but you have no security, you're always going to be on edge. There's one country which would have been paradise on earth, in my opinion, if it wasn't for the crime. It's got some of the best weather, the best fruit, the best landscapes, South Africa. We've got friends who live there, they cannot allow their children to go to the corner shop. Alhamdulillah, we don't have that problem here. They're constantly in fear that they're going to be hijacked or robbed because it's a big problem. Their security is very well. Alhamdulillah, we have security in this country. Right? May Allah bless. And may Allah make it better. We have a decent health system in this country. In those countries, you have to pay for it, arm and leg. Some people will not go to hospital because they don't have the money to go. Here, we just go to a doctor all the time. We complain about the NHS. Right? It has its problems, but it's a blessing. And number three... You've got security, you've got wealth, and you've got health. Now, when you have those things, and you can buy whatever you want, you can wear the clothing you want, the cars you want to drive. Generally speaking, you always want to upgrade. But generally speaking, you have the phones you want. You feel like I, I'm fine. Now, the other thing is, we have become such, we have become such consumers um, that we can anything we want even if you don't have the money you can put it on your credit card and hopefully when you get your wage you'll pay or you'll pay interest or whatever this is the systems we have everything is available to you and you can get it the next day even the same day amazon prime who doesn't have amazon prime here number one. okay anybody today i'm not saying it's wrong to have amazon prime but i'm saying that mashallah there you can order anything it comes the next day now you know when you open up a box that you get from when you open up a box You open it, how good do you feel? Isn't there a special feeling you get when you get a parcel? Or no, I mean, what's wrong with you guys? You get a feeling or not? Right? How long does that feeling last though? You know why you get that feeling? Amazon has created a special powder, it's invisible. When they pack the box, they put the powder inside. So when you open it, you smell it, and you get this real good feeling of getting a new product. But it doesn't last long few hours maybe, sometime, maybe one day, and then you have to do it again, you have to order something again. If you can just buy that powder, you won't have to order anything. Because you just take a bit of that every day and you'll feel good. I'm just joking, by the way. Right? There's no powder like that. But I wouldn't, to be honest, the, the amount of money Amazon has for spare research, it's huge. So I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to create something like this. Right? Um, you, do, you guys do understand the joke, right? And humor, yes, okay, alhamdulillah I'm just trying to explain that this is So if you have Amazon Prime And you have Netflix And you can basically watch, watch, watch And binge, 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 as they call it Because the algorithm on there is you watch one thing And then as soon as that finishes The next one comes up because before you can even relax And then you just keep watching and watching and watching What time do you, do, will you then have to think about life? You're getting everything you want to your door that same day or the next day, and you can entertain yourself 24-7. What time do you have to think about anything else? Why should you care for anything else? You see, this is the life that a lot of people are getting into, including Muslims, obviously. So, this is what you call apathy. It's a big issue. Just indifference. So now... When you get to school now, a lot of the questions that are being asked and which pa- Muslim parents, you see this, this is like the recent issues the parents are fighting against uh, what the school wants to teach them, the, fa- the school in this country is now trying to become, the, the educational system is trying to become the parent. We should, they say, the educational system needs, knows best what children need to know, not parents. It's true, some parents don't know what to teach their children, some, minority. But they're saying that, and they, those are the examples they will use to justify that the schools need to explain the best parent. So this is the issues that we're having. So you've got all of these children, uh, teenagers. So one, I was called to one house of a religious family. The mother wears a niqab, the father's a guy who got a beard, and, you know, he prays salat, and, you know, Uh, And uh, the the son Doesn't believe in Islam anymore It's like why And every argument he had Is from Richard Dawkins Richard Dawkins is essentially One of the main five atheists Of the last 20-30 years That have caused a huge amount of confusion We have always had atheists People who denied God You know for centuries But because religion was so strong They would have to be quiet Or they would have to be disguised But now they become very open on YouTube, for example, and other places. Not just him, there's others like Christopher Hitchens and a few others. So that's caused a lot of confusion. So now let's take a kid who's had some bad trauma or problem. He starts reading this. He agrees with it. He believes in it. The problem is that this isn't scientific way to even look at something. The way to look at something is you look at both sides. And then you make a decision. So I asked, have you read anything that has been written opposed to this, because numerous non-Muslims have actually written an answer to Dawkins and showed his flaws. He says, no, I haven't. So essentially what you're doing is you're just blindly following somebody because you have antagonism, you have an animosity towards your own because of something bad that happened. This is a lot of the problem. That's why. Even parents nowadays need to be aware of what's going on. And when they see a problem, they need to go and find out. All of us, the ulama, the, the people, need to update their knowledge. To find out what Islam really is. Now if I... Uh, th- there was somebody I was talking to the other day. He's like an uncle to me. And he, was, he loves conspiracy theories. <coughs> Through WhatsApp, you get... Uh, These these videos and others that are talking about these conspiracy theories, who was behind the 9/11 and who was behind this and who was behind it's very juicy stuff. If you get into that, I don't believe in anything anymore like that because they can manipulate so much, right? So I he he says, what do you think of this? I said I don't have a uh, about a political issue. I said I don't know. I don't need to have an opinion. You know, I don't have time to go and investigate these things. Then I asked him a question. I said, since you went to Islamic uh, Madrasa when you were young, he is now 65, 70 years old. When you were young, 10, 12, 15, up to 16, 17, the Madrasa you went to and whatever you studied there, since that time, have you ever read a book on Islam on any Islamic aspect, Any Islamic aspects? A hadith book or about Islam itself or about marriage and Islam, whatever or have you taken a class you listen he listens to Bayan's he listens to lectures but remember lectures are generally general ideas it's not like they don't talk on focused scientific you know issues it's a general encouragement these are what Bayan's are right he's listened to a lot of Bayan's and he gets YouTube every week every day but he's never read a book And he's never taken a class, even two-hour seminar anywhere. So I said, your understanding of Islam is what you got from a young age, when you were not very mature, when you weren't very experienced. That's the Islam you studied, and the only updates you've had are through bayans. You've never had a serious update of reading the Qur'an for yourself, or hadith for yourself, or any other good book on Islam. Or a class on Islam. And isn't this the case with the majority of us? Or at least a lot of us. Even if we're confused about something, we won't go and look for it. We may ask a few things, the the brave ones may ask a few things here, but that's about it. That's why it's so easy to divide us and confuse us. And to get us going, because we don't understand the proper Islamic idea of things. That's why one of the books that has been recently written. There are two books I'm going to suggest. Uh, w- they're both by a prince. And he's written a book called A Thinking Person's Guide to Islam. I read that. It's amazing. Mufti Taqi Usmani read it and wrote him a, uh, uh, like a review for it as well. He's very specially c- closely connected to Mufti Taqi Usmani as well. Then he wrote another book after that, which everybody must read, which is called a thinking person's guide to our times, especially those people who like their history, who are always wanting to understand about why things are and what the future holds. So what he's done is he's talked about the last 30, 40 years, then he's talked about the present time, and then he's made some predictions for the next 30 years. And he gives a number of solutions in there. And one of the solutions he gives in there. Is that you must update your knowledge With the right kind of literature and books And a number of others But for those who like this kind of stuff You should definitely read that book Because it will give you something more substantial I'm surprised at the amount of Coverage and insight he has Because I would never be able to get that Because he's got that position where he gets a lot of knowledge Based on you know being at that level So Now Let me give you an example Imam Ghazali one of our greatest thinkers and scholars right? He died in 505 Hijri At the age of 55 only He writes an autobiography of himself And he had, a really investi- uh, uh, he had a really inquisitive mind He would never take anything just because he heard it He would inquire about it and try to prove it and he talks about how that got him into trouble once. Big trouble. He said, I started studying everything from a completely clear mind. Like, I'm, I'm going to try not to be subjective. I'm going to try to be objective. Anything that I've known before, I'm going to try to put it to the side. And I'm going to see if it comes from a definitive form of evidence. Then I'll, be, then I'll accept it. For that you have to start being skeptical Skeptical means doubting everything And critiquing everything For that you have to become like that Otherwise how else are you going to question You have to doubt right And then it has to convince you to remove the doubt He said Because he said I saw that We as Muslims Have a very strong Following of our faith And we're confident in our faith But I see But can that prove that your faith is the right faith just because you are convinced about your faith? He said, I saw Christians, some Christians are also convinced about their, especially in his time. Now, it's probably not the case, but in his time. And you see Jews, and they're very convinced about their faith. So being convinced about your faith is not an evidence. So I decided to go to the fundamentals and take only those ideas which everybody would agree to like, Axiomatic ideas like Two is greater than one Does anybody disagree with that idea So he said I'm going to try to find Evidences that are like this Two is greater than one Father has to be older than his son There's no way a son is ever going to be older than the father Nobody disagrees with this Like everybody agrees with this I want only proofs like this And you know what he said He said I eventually ran into so much trouble That I couldn't find anything That could convince me Because he became an arch skeptic. An arch skeptic is somebody who, even a, uh, he'll ask you, prove that you are your father's son. How would you prove that you're father's son? What proof can you bring that you are your parents' child? DNA. DNA. Okay, birth certificate or DNA, right? So, birth certificate, if you go to Pakistan, you could probably make one up. Both of them. Right? Yeah. Second name, It's a good idea, uh, you know, it, mashallah I appreciate the fact that you've given that as an idea. Um, second name, to be honest, that will probably only work in the Gujarati and British uh, and English community. I think for Pakistanis and Bangladeshis it won't work because your surnames are all different. Your, your father's name becomes your surname. You don't, uh, you, your tribal affiliation goes, that, you know, goes out of the window. Right? You guys have no surname. Right, your dad's name is Ahmed, so you become Junaid Ahmed. And your son becomes um, Qadir Junaid. what is that? There's no connection. Look for a surname, your butt, Raja, that's your surname. Anyway, that's a different gripe I have. Because Allah says, <laughs> Allah has created you in tribes and clans so that you can gain mutual recognition. By look by, by many surnames that we hear, you can't even tell what tribe you're from. Or Braggarian, what's the point of it then? Right? Your first name becomes a surname. So, thank you very much for mentioning the surname. But, surname is not a definitive evidence because somebody could make a surname up. In this country, your child can have any surname he wants. He doesn't have to have your father's surname. Do you you see what I'm saying? So, that's not proof. Birth certificate, you could make them up. DNA are not 100%. They're like 99 point something percent, and definitive means 100%. You know, just like two is greater than one, DNA is not as good as that. It's good, but it's not as good as that. And sometimes, some rare cases, DNA confuses even further. I have had a case recently in a fertility clinic. There's, a, there's a, the, the person who heads the fertility is a Muslim woman. And there was a weird case. I don't want to go into that right now because I want to finish and give you time for questions. So so he said, I got so confused because there's nothing so absolute. Everything was too confusing. This is the example he gives. Don't follow me in this example, right? You know when you're in... Uh, you guys, you guys dream in Southampton? Do you guys dream? Do you have a dream? Like a proper dream at night. Do you guys dream? The dream comes through angels. So the dream angel does come to Southampton right, and give you dreams, right? Some people dream more than others. What's your name, brother? Hunayn. Huh? No, no, no. The, our little brother. Hunain. Hunain. Is that Hunain or Hunain? Hunayn, mashallah. So, do you have dreams? Sometimes. So you get a dream, right? Now, in your dream, especially those nightmares, right? You know when you're scared about something, something bad is happening, and you feel like you're sweating and everything. How real does it feel? Does it feel fake then? Or does it feel real? It feels absolutely real, right? But when you wake up, Alhamdulillah, that didn't happen. Do you see what I'm saying? But when you're in your dream, isn't it like reality? No doubt, right? You have no doubt. You don't know you're in a dream. Right? And somebody told me there's a movie they made where you drink something and they send you into a dream. You go to sleep and they send you in a dream. And then they, in their dream, they took the same potion and then they go into a sub-dream. I forget what it's called. Somebody mentioned it. Uh, There was a friend of mine who said, you must watch this because this tells you how crazy things are. Just forget it. Um, What I'm trying to say is that when you're in a dream, you feel it's a reality. You have no doubt. Right? Now let me ask you this. What about if now you're in a dream as well and this is all a dream? How can you prove that right now, this bayan that's happening and all the 30, 40, 50, 60 years you've lived here, It's just a long dream and suddenly you're going to wake up from it. Can you prove you're not in a dream right now? Because in a dream, it's like maybe pinch myself. You can do that in a dream. Just the way a dreaming person doesn't know he's in a dream and he feels it's reality, how can you prove you're in a reality right now? But do you understand where this is getting to? Because if you challenge somebody to prove that they're not in a dream right now, And you're like stubborn No, I want proper proof There's no way you can prove to somebody You're gonna call him crazy probably That's how real you think you are right now That anybody who challenges that You're gonna think this guy's crazy That's how much strong you, you are right? In this feeling So he basically said that If Allah had not helped me Then I would never have gotten out of this dilemma So at the end of the day What matters for us is that we do question a bit, but there's a limit. After that, it's just absurd questioning. Because then, as I said, these people, these arch skeptics in the world, they will question you about your fatherhood. Uh, uh, Sorry, about who your father or mother is. Even DNA doesn't work for them. And a birth certificate definitely doesn't work. And a surname takes you nowhere in that case. How are you going to prove it to them? But do you understand what I'm talking about? That If you want to question things, there's no end to questioning. And our deen specifically, while we're not saying that you must not look for answers when you have a question, but our deen is about the belief in the unseen because we've never seen Allah, but we feel Him. And remember the best deen, the best experience of deen, the person with the strongest deen is going to be the one who experiences his religion than the one who just learns about it rationally. Because rationally, in, uh, as logically, there's always another logic that could break that logic. But if you have felt Allah accepting your du'as, if you have gotten up at night and then tahajjud and felt the presence of Allah, nobody can shake you. And this is what a lot of people are missing. Because of which then shaitan takes over and creates doubts through arguments. That's why ulama mentioned that the strongest argument is when you, Allah has given you the experience of your faith through du'as. If you've made du'a and your du'as, if you made du'a properly with the right conditions and your du'a has been accepted, believe me, you will never have your fa- faith shaken. Because you know Allah exists. That is the best deen. And let me tell you, Sufyan al Thawri was one of our greatest muhaddithin and greatest awliya as well. One day he's seen crying. Why are you crying? He picks up a grain of wheat. A grain of wheat, right? is smaller than a chickpea. It's smaller than that. It's very small. He said, I've not disobeyed Allah knowingly even this much. Can you imagine how much, how much control he had? He never disobeyed Allah even that much, right? So why are you crying? He said, because my iman is so valuable, I have not disobeyed Allah that much until now, but I don't know what's going to happen until I die. I'm, the more you understand the value of your faith and how that Allah loves you, as you if you read the Quran, you will see the love that Allah has, then you will be fearful of losing your iman. Now, Harun al-Rashid, he's going with his wife on the seashore. And what's his wife's name, by the way? Zubaydah. MashaAllah. Not Zulaikah, right? Zubaydah. That's right. So he's walking. She's a bit behind. He's walking. And he sees, on, suddenly he comes upon this older man, who is this wild, uh, wise, eccentric person. A bit different from everybody else. And he would say these wise words. You know what he was doing? He was making sandcastles. Have you ever seen an old man making sandcastles? Right? That's really cool, right? There was no YouTube in those days, so you can't check it up online. But this guy was making sandcastles. Right. So Harun Rashid went to him and he says, Why are you doing, what are you making? Bahlul, his name was Bahlul. Bahlul Dana. Yeah. He says, What are you making? He said, I'm making palaces of Jannah. He's making palaces of Jannah in the sand. And I'm selling them for one dinar, one gold piece for one, uh, for one palace. Harun Rashid is a businessman, he's a khalifa, he's like, okay, you know, that's, I don't believe in all of this, and he carried on. Zubaydah, women are generally more emotional, and they're more, you know, trusting. She comes along, she asks him the same question. I'm making palaces of Jannah, and I'm selling them one day. She bought one. She gave him a and she bought one. Harun Rashid has, goes to sleep at night, and he has a dream. In his dream, he's in Jannah. He's in paradise. And as he's walking through Jannah, suddenly he sees this big palace. And emblazoned on the front is Zubaydah. That this is Zubaydah's palace. He thinks it's his wife. Let me, wife's palace. He says, let me go and check it out. They said, no, you can't. This is your wife's palace. You can't go in there. So he feels really bad. He wakes up in the morning and he realizes that I didn't buy a castle. So he goes back to the shore to look for Bahlul, And he hopes that he's making sandcastles. And sure enough, as he gets there, Bahlul is there making sandcastles. He says, Bahlul, what are you doing? He says, I'm making palaces of Jannah and I'm selling them. He says, okay, I'd like to buy one. He says, okay, fine. One one palace today for your entire kingdom. (laughs) Harun says, what's wrong with you? Yesterday you were one dinar and today you're saying the entire kingdom. He said, yes. Yesterday was iman bil ghayb and today it's iman with the seen. Yesterday, if you purchased it, you don't know what your risk you're taking. That's why it was so cheap. But now you know what it's worth. It's worth your kingdom. This is our faith is part iman bil ghayb. Allah says in the beginning of the Qur'an, أَلَّذِينَ bil ghayb." Now, this is, uh, I, uh, you know, I've not been able to say enough as much as I would say, but we need to have questions because I don't want to leave anybody in any confusion or I could say a lot of stuff but it may not be what you are challenged with because people have different challenges so we'll open it up but on ZamzamAcademy.com, we've got at least three or four lectures on this topic that are in detail and for somebody who really wants to understand the controversial questions that non-muslims generally ask to islam about aisha age and all of these things then we've actually got a course on white what is it on yeah on whitethreadinstitute.org it's like a two-week course where you just have to listen and it's got loads of questions, these controversial questions. We've dealt with about 60, 70 questions that your colleagues may ask or somebody will ask. You can sign up for that and, and you can take that as a proper course. Right? Uh, for any kind. But anyway, we will open it up now. What doing? Jazakallah. That's a typical question and I expect that to come. So, if there's a God, then why do you have misery in the world? Right? This is the, now think about this carefully, right? If there is a God, then why do you have misery in the world? So look, think of this, think of this carefully. If there is a God, why is there suffering in the world? Do you think about it logically? Do you, what's the problem there? What is the problem there? If there's a God and misery is found in the world, that is somehow... The 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 result of that means there's no God. Why? What is the connection between there being a God and misery? What is the problem with there being misery if there's a God? Tell me that is the question. Do you understand what I'm asking? A lot of people feel that if there's a God, there can't be misery. But why not? Why can't there misery if there's a? Why can't there be misery or suffering if there is a God? right because the reason why they think that is this is a christian idea all right this is a very christian idea it's not a muslim idea in christianity over the centuries as christianity has evolved or whatever you want to call it they have pretty much defined god as merciful and loving that's it nothing else so if the de- if your definition of god is the one who is merciful only and nothing else then you have a problem with there being misery in the world, because if there's a merciful being, how can he allow misery? Now, for us, God is merciful, and He tells us to read this about 17 times a day, minimum. Al-Rahman, al-Rahim. God is loving al-Wadud, but He is also God is also the mighty one, the majestic one, the punisher, the avenger, the one from whom things can harm. Uh, he can harm things. So for us. When there's a problem, it just Allah, the, the, uh, for us, that's just Allah showing some of His names. And when there's mercy, then that's Allah showing His merciful names. But He does say that my mercy dominates my anger. I have anger, and I will show it sometimes when I want to punish people if they don't listen. Because nobody gets punished for no reason. And another two, number two, let's just say the tsunami, right, that took place in, uh, there were two tsunamis. Right? One was about last year or the year before, and there was one about several years ago. The Archbishop of Canterbury, who is the head of the Anglican Church of the UK, right? both of them, uh, Ron Williams first and now Welby, when, when the tsunamis took place, one in the previous time and one in the current uh, uh, Archbishop's time, they both said that uh, their faith shook why did their faith shook because they have defined god as only merciful and they their god can't do anything so it's like how can there be such suffering when our god is only merciful for muslims we don't have a problem because our god is very comprehensive right and if you carry on there's a long answer to this i'm only giving you a bit but the idea is that let's just say that two people are married and they just can't get along Uh, well one wants to the marriage and the other one doesn't. He just can't see or she cannot see future. And decides to leave and separate and get divorced. The other person is going to be very harmed. Right? Misery. What kind of world do you want to live in if you think there can't ever be misery? Misery is inevitable in this world. Misery is part and parcel of this world. suffering is part and parcel of this world. It's not just suffering of children in war that's a suffering. Suffering is also when you lose your mother, you're going to suffer. When you lose a loved one, you're going to suffer. What kind of a world do you want to live in? The fact that we have free will, the ability to make a, informed, uh, or make a choice of whatever, sometimes we're going to make bad choices. Sometimes we're going to go in the wrong lane and you might get crashed. There has to be suffering. Otherwise, the whole system of the world is going to change. With what we have here, there has to be suffering. It's part of the deal. But what Allah tells us to do is that when you have suffering, you make sabr and you put your tawakkul in Allah. And when you don't have suffering, you have prosperity, you do shukr of Allah. That's what we're told how to deal with suffering. Otherwise, suffering for Muslims has never been a problem. Now, a tsunami, right? Some people are killed, lots of people are killed in a tsunami, Right? Lots of people are killed in a tsunami. Some people are killed because it's a punishment for them because they were bad people. The others were innocent. Maybe they were miserable. Allah for for them. Remember that's all shahadat. Because for us we have so many people who Allah gives the maqam of shahadat and martyrdom to if they're killed in unfavorable circumstances. So that's the short answer to this question. So don't get don't don't, don't like. If there's a God, why can't they be suffering? Why are you even agreeing with the premise in the first place? It's a wrong idea they're coming from.